0: Today on Locked On Anaheim Ducks, it's part two of a special two-part series about the last time a global pandemic affected hockey. Join me on today's Locked On Anaheim Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, hockey fans. It is Thursday, and it has been exactly seven days since the NHL officially put the 2019-2020 season on pause because of the COVID-19 pandemic, more commonly known as the coronavirus. I'm Jason J.D. Hernandez, your tour guide, game show veteran, and hockey historian, ready to present the conclusion of my deep dive into the Spanish flu pandemic from over a century ago and how that led to the tragic conclusion of the 1919 Stanley Cup Final. But before we get into all that, you can find this program via Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to rate, comment, and most of all, subscribe. As far as social media, this show is at LO underscore Ducks on Twitter, or follow me on Twitter at StimpyJD. And tell all your friends about it. Tell all your Ducks friends, your Kings friends. You know, if they like a little bit of history, if they like some hockey history, definitely recommend today's podcast and yesterday's podcast where it was part one of this series so make sure to tell all your friends and just keep listening yesterday we focused more on the historical side of the spanish flu the 1918 nhl season and the lead up to the 1919 season where one death had already occurred if you haven't already I'd strongly advise you to listen to yesterday's podcast as this is meant to be a historically deep dive into those fateful events a hundred plus years ago. Once again, I collected several old newspaper clippings and articles, mostly from the now defunct Seattle star because the climax of this story took place in Seattle. As I stated yesterday, the reason I'm bringing this up now is because we could possibly see history repeating itself, And it's always important to look back and see how this all relates. What can we possibly learn from this? The 1919 season was the only time so far where the Stanley Cup was not awarded because of a pandemic. As of current, the NHL still has not decided whether to play out the rest of the season during the summer or not. However, as I'm about to address it may not be the best idea to rush back into hockey right away. Real life is more important, and we should be cognizant of the fact that severe viruses could come in waves. Now that I've addressed the current situation, here is the conclusion of this two-part series. When I left off yesterday, the Great War had just ended in November 1918. The troops were coming home left and right. Unfortunately, Along with the troops was the Spanish Influenza, which happened to hitch a ride with the returning American and Canadian soldiers, and this was the first wave of soldiers coming back. More would come later. Even on November 30th, there were over 80,000 troops waiting to sail back to the States, and some of them would wait for a very long time. Then on Wednesday, December 11th, the U.S. Surgeon General Rupert Blue officially declared that the, quote, flu won't come back, end quote, not knowing what was to come later. As far as hockey was concerned, the NHL season was shortened for several reasons, including the possibility of the NHA reforming. Spoiler alert, it never happened. There was also some leasing issues with the Jubilee Arena in Montreal. If you recall from yesterday's episode, The reason the Montreal Wanderers folded was because their arena burned to the ground. And the Canadians were forced back into their old home at the Jubilee. The season was also already shortened to 20 games, partially because of the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, If you recall, there was a player in Ottawa that had passed away already. And both leagues were somewhat diligent in making sure that everything was safe for the players. Oh, there was also that whole great war ending, peace, all that stuff. That was important too. As the 1918 year drew to a close, this, this was quoted in the Journal of the American Medical Association from December 28th, 1918. And this is a long one. Quote, the 1918 year has gone. A year momentous as the termination of the most cruel war in the annals of the human race a year which marked the end at least for a time of man's destruction of man. Unfortunately, a year in which developed a most fatal infectious disease causing the death of hundreds of thousands of human beings, medical science for four and one half years devoted itself to putting men on the firing line and keeping them there. Now it must turn with its whole might to combating the greatest enemy of all, infectious disease, end quote. So even back then, they knew that the fight against this Spanish influenza was not over yet, not by a long shot. Meanwhile, newspapers across the country, they pretty much stopped reporting on the pandemic because there were other bigger stories dominating the American landscape, like, I don't know, the war ending, the death of Teddy Roosevelt, that was a pretty big one. And some amendment going into law that would only be repealed 14 years later, anyway. Yeah, that amendment. Something about prohibition, no beer. I mean, what's a hockey game without beer, you say? Well, how about a hockey game with hamburgers and hot dogs? And speaking of hamburgers and hot dogs, yeah, here's the segue. Did you know that the Locked On podcast network is helping you all out during this period of social distancing with a special deal on food delivery. For a limited time only, Locked On is giving you the chance to order food right from your phone. All you have to do is download the Postmates app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store, enter the promo code LOCKEDONNBA, all one word, and receive $100 credit for your first seven days. In this time of self-quarantine, this is the perfect opportunity to try Postmates. Once again, enter promo code LOCKEDONNBA to receive 100 bucks of free restaurant delivery credit for your first seven days. Coming up after the first intermission, the 1919 NHL season begins. And, well, yeah. It, it begins. It ends. It gets interesting. Stay locked in. Welcome back to Locked On Anaheim Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. You're locked in with Jason J.D. Hernandez as we continue our very deep dive into the 1919 season and the 1919 Cup Final, where tragedy struck eventually. As I had mentioned before the break, things got a little bit interesting during this 1919 season. Uh, hockey did start in January instead of December with only six teams, three in the West and three in the east. In the PCHA, or the Pacific Coast Association, it was a mighty battle between Victoria, Vancouver, and Seattle, where they actually played a full schedule. However, in the National Hockey League, troubles were brewing. Montreal, Ottawa, and the Toronto Arenas started the season, but near the end of February, the team from Toronto of all things, yeah, really, the Toronto team was forced to fold because of poor play, training issues, and finances, of course. This would almost be the death knell for the NHL in only its second season. It was decided that the season would end immediately, and the remaining two teams would have a playoff series to determine who would play for the Stanley Cup. Yes, you heard that right. The NHL season ended with only two teams. Can you imagine? That was the last time such an occurrence would ever happen again. So with two teams left, what do you do? Well, you have a playoff, of course. Montreal won their best of seven series easily over the Ottawa Senators, four games to one. And they would wait a while to see if they'd be traveling to Vancouver against the Millionaires or Seattle against the Metropolitans. I will say, both teams have very distinctive and very awesome jerseys. So it was a win either way. The Mets finished their season winning three in a row and faced off in a two-game total goal affair against the Vancouver Millionaires. The Mets were expected to win the series because of a key injury to the Millionaires' star rover, Mickey McKay. Remember, this was the Pacific Coast rules. They played seven-on-seven, including the goalie, with the extra skater instead of the six-man game we know and love today. So on the Pacific Coast League, you have a goalie and six skaters. There is less room on the ice, therefore it is more physical, not as much room, as opposed to the NHL where there's a bit more room. And just kind of thinking about it, you go from six skaters to five skaters, and now we have three-on-three all-star games. Yeah, it's more room for the players when you take men away. So that's where Montreal really shined. And here's the paper from March 12th, the version of the Seattle Star, March 12th. And this was a nice little preview of the action. But before they did that, they had a nice little two-paragraph thing on the Seattle Star player, Frank Foyston. Hitting up his regular stride after being knocked out several times this season by injuries, Frank Foyston, Seattle forward, is playing high-class hockey for the local club. Foyston is one of the best-liked hockey players in the game today because he is in there playing his best, and he gives his every effort to the welfare of his team, sacrificing his individual record. I kind of like that. I I love p- players' descriptions where, you know, they give everything they've got. So I liked reading that. As far as the series preview, it was a two-game preview. Right away, it said, Seattle should win. The Seattle team should win the game tonight if they play up to form at all. The Vancouver team will have a changed personnel when they tackle the Mets here tonight. Mickey McKay, the speedy rover, will be unable to take the ice because he is still under the weather. And the Vancouver defense will be strengthened with the addition of the veteran C. Griffin. So, hmm. There's partial injury, but also he was under the weather. Uh, It was never confirmed as far as newspapers, if he ended up with the flu or not. But he never got to play, so I guess we don't know for sure. The Mets did have the advantage of condition, as they have had the benefit of a full week's rest, while the Vancouver men have played two hard games with Victoria during the week. The Seattle team will take the ice with their regular lineup. And then, uh, this paper clipping goes on to say that Duncan will hold down the rover position in place of the injured McKay. Duncan is a big, powerful man, but lacks the speed of the versatile Mickey. Vancouver will miss Mickey McKay tonight because he is undoubtedly one of the best players in the league this season. On the defense, Vancouver will present Cook, a steady player and captain of the team, and C. Griffin. Vancouver has the biggest ace in hockey in the person of Hugh Lehman, their great goalie. Lehman had an off night at Victoria Monday, and the Aristocrats rang up eight goals. Lehman has put up some great games in Seattle, and if there are any better goalies in the game, we will have to be shown. So it goes on to have the lineup, and here's what the newspaper said after the game. As far as the first game, it was all Seattle. Yeah, they trounced Vancouver big time. They swamped them. And the newspaper headline the following day said, Locals are nearly sure of the Coast Puck title. Murray does hero act. And this story is by Leo H. Lassen. So here's a story. Rolling up a count of 6-1, the Seattle Hockey 7 won the first tilt of the Coast Title Series playoff from the Vancouver squad at the local arena last night before the biggest crowd of the season. In order to beat Seattle out of the Coast Title, the Vancouver squad must score five more goals than Seattle in the final mix in the Canadian city tomorrow night. With a five-goal lead, the Seattle men are practically certain of bringing the Coast Honors to Seattle. Although the millionaires are always dangerous, and manager Muldoon is warning his pets not to become overconfident of last night's success. And this is kind of a big headline as, as far as this one goes. It just says, Vancouver wasn't there. Quote, the Vancouver team simply wasn't there last night, and the Seattle men outplayed, outskated, and outgenerated the visitors at every angle of the game. The Seattle men were without the services of Bernie Morris, the star center of the locals, who was being held in custody on a draft evasion charge at Fort Lawton. Yeah, cannot make this up. It was thought up until the last moment that Morris would be paroled to play, but he did not put in an appearance. Muzz Murray, the big utility player of the Mets, stepped into Morris's place and showed the fans how to work. He was the big noise in the Seattle team's play, scoring two goals unassisted and using his weight with effect on the defense. Walker and Foyston played better hockey at times than Murray, but the Husky substitute did the rescue act for the locals. End quote. Yeah, the Vancouver defense completely cracked in the second period. You know, they let in everything after being tired after the first period first period there was really no scoring to be had and it's really interesting looking at these clippings and seeing goal left defense right defense rover rover all right center left wing right wing yeah it's still weird to see these box scores like that in the second period there were goals by foyston foyston murray so they had three goals in the second period foyston had two of them then in the third period vancouver got a goal from cook And then after that, it was Wilson from Walker, Foyston from McDonald at 323, and then Murray unassisted. So Foyston got three of the six goals for the Mets, and they won the first game 6-1. to They had a five-goal advantage. So they needed to score at least six goals to overtake them, five to tie it up. So Vancouver had a big road ahead of them. That's what it had to come down to. And what would happen during that game? Well, I mean, okay. The first game was a complete blowout. And while this series was going, the Habs were heading west to take on the winner of this two-game series. The following game was a mostly defensive battle in the end. While Vancouver scored the first four goals of the game, Seattle tightened up on defense and even scored a late goal to seal the Pacific Coast title for the Seattle Mets. And here's the paper from... March 15th. Hey, the Ides of March. This is almost exactly 101 years ago. How about that? Uh, here's what it says in the paper. Seattle wins Coast Hockey title crown. McDonald saves the Mets. It goes on to say, the Vancouver Ice Hockey Club came within an ace of tying the Seattle Club for the Coast Hockey title when it downed the visitors in the local rink last night 4-1. to one. More than 10,000 people thronged the Vancouver arena to witness the struggle. 10,000 guys in 1919. Yeah, they were not practicing social distancing at all. The Vancouver men started off with a rush and rang up two goals in the first period, then another two in the second session. But in the final period, with one goal needed to tie the Seattle men, the millionaires played frantically. But Ray McDonald took all the pep out of their attack when he scored a goal for the Seattle crew On a pass from Walker, with 10 minutes left to go, the Vancouver men needed two goals to even up the series, but the Seattle men played defensive hockey and the home squad didn't have another chance to register. Seattle will meet Les Canadiens in the first battle for the world's title in Seattle Wednesday. The Eastern champs are expected to arrive on the coast late Monday with the Ottawa's, who will play a series of games with Vancouver, end quote. Kind of interesting just reading these old clippings and seeing how they're written back in the day. But that's what was written. So now, it was all down to Montreal versus Seattle for the 1919 Stanley Cup. We are at the climax of this story. The stage was set. They would play a best-of-five series for Lord Stanley's Cup. Les Canadiens were set to arrive early Tuesday morning, as it turned out. One day ahead of their series with the Mets. However... What they didn't know is that they were heading right into danger. Buckle up, folks. We're in for a big ride here. Uh, First, I want to apologize that this part of the podcast is recording much later than the other two parts. I apologize for that right off the bat. Yeah, now we're at the climax of the story. The 1919 Stanley Cup Final. This is where everything happened. Right around the time when the Stanley Cup Final was set to begin, there was a third wave of the Spanish flu beginning to materialize in New York City and other parts of the East Coast. In fact, on the March 18th version of the Seattle Star, it was pointed out That the vets would be welcomed home over the following four days. Combined with both the Ottawa and Montreal teams coming in from the West Coast. And that spelled a recipe for disaster. Because of something called the speed of spread. And I want to explain what the speed of spread is. This is from the Metabiota site once again. I referenced that site yesterday. I'm going to reference that site once again today. So why is speed of spread important? Well, flu can spread quickly. Flu has a short generation time, the time between infections compared to many pathogens including Ebola. The faster a pandemic spreads, the more widespread it becomes before it is detected and interventions are initiated, which one reduces the window of opportunity for interventions to be implemented like vaccines, antivirals, two reduces effectiveness of interventions when they are applied. Something else to consider. Fast-spreading pandemics lead to a higher peak number of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths at a given time, which could exceed national and international medical supply and response capacity. This is all sounding very familiar, isn't it? The faster a pandemic spreads, the greater the economic impact. More resources are needed to react to a fast-moving pandemic also for countries impacted by previous pandemics at the time of detection they had considerable travel reduction to their country so how this relates to the 1918 speed of spread well back in the 1910s commercial airlines didn't exist in fact car ownership was still a luxury and the speed of travel was dramatically slower in fact it took days for both montreal and Ottawa's teams to make it out to the West Coast. They came by train. So it took more than a day, as opposed to nowadays where it takes mere hours to get from one part of Canada to the other, or Washington State, wherever they're going. So there were transportation limitations. But despite that, there was still considerable human movement 100 years ago. The reason being because by 1918, train networks were becoming well-established, and the speed of spread during the 1918 pandemic also became supercharged due to World War One, And the pandemic spread surprisingly quickly, reaching London by June of 1918, and then reaching other parts of the world by August of 1918. So how did World War One impact the speed of spread? Well, increased international travel, of course. Crowded wartime living conditions. This is a big one. Limited medical resources dedicated to war effort reduced the ability to help mitigate the pandemic. And this is a fourth one, and this is from the Metabiota website. Government censorship inhibited the public from knowing the true severity of the pandemic at the time. So how is the speed of spread different today? Well, it's obvious. We have cars. We have airlines. People travel around the world just like that. It would have taken days to reach Ottawa and Montreal from here from Southern California. Now it'll take a 5-6 hour flight. People are going around the world rapidly and because of that the speed of spread goes up tremendously between the pandemic of 1918 and the pandemic now. So that's where speed of spread becomes very vital. And we have to understand that you know these pandemics they do travel. They travel no matter what we do. We just saw positive cases in Ottawa. An Ottawa player tested positive. They played in Southern California. But you never know how fast that can go. And it's even been reported that we could see a severe spike in the number of cases and the number of deaths. Not only in our country, but around the world. So understanding that is very important to how we react to the pandemic going on right now to better prepare for the next pandemic. You know, there was lots of simulations accounting for today's, you know, risk of spark speed of spread preparedness. It turns out we might not be that prepared. So that's just something that you have to cope with and deal with. And that's why the newspapers, even all the way back then are saying the same thing right now, you know, Cover your mouth when you're coughing. Don't go out if you're sick. That's a big one. Especially don't go out if you're sick or you have the flu. If you are going to work, don't do it if you're sick. Don't go to work if you have the flu. You're putting everyone around you at danger. Especially during a time of a pandemic. Because as I pointed out before, these things can mutate. There was the first wave. Then there was the second wave. And now there's a third wave coming as far as our story goes. And we're going to go back to 1919. The third wave is just starting. The epidemic, sorry, the pandemic, the virus has mutated at this point. So now we go back to the newspaper clippings all the way back in March of 1919. In fact, we're going back to March 19th, 1919 because Seattle is, And the Flying Frenchmen were all set for hockey glory. And these stories, once again, are from the Seattle star. So I'm going to quote Leo Lassen. Quote, Fighting for the hockey championship of the world, the Seattle Metropolitans, champions of Western hockey, will make a case against Les Canadiennes or the Flying Frenchmen of Montreal. The Easterners are a much stronger crew than when they visited the coast the first time. They've added Joe Hall, a defenseman, Alone Cracks Bear and Clegghorn, one of the best stick handlers in the game. So already the newspapers were saying that this was going to be a very battle, a very good battle for the Supreme Trophy of the game. They were already predicting that this would go at least four games. It could go five games. Games one, three, and five would be under the Western rules. Two and four would be under the NHL rules. So that's what was going on. That was the I guess setup. For Game 1. And in fact, it goes on to continue. Um, the story that is on the newspaper saying that the title is at stake. And even the Seattle star, they were talking about the star goalie for the Montreal Canadiens. They talked a lot about him. The Canadiens have some of the greatest stars in hockey in their lineup. At goal, they have George Vesna, one of the star goalies of the game. He uses an extra long stick, which he uses to his advantage. However, he will have to show a lot of class to play a better game than our own Happy Holmes. The visitors have the edge on the defense. In Corbeau and Hall, they have two of the hardest-checking defensemen in the game. They will outweigh Roe and Ricky, the Seattle pair, but they won't be able to outfight them. On the forward line, the visitors will also have a very slight edge. So even back then... There was this feeling that this was going to go five games. And Montreal had a pretty decent chance against Seattle. And this is the local paper saying that. So now we go on to game one of the Stanley Cup final. And boy, it was not close. Under the Western rules, under the seven-on-seven game, Seattle Mets trounced the flying Frenchman 7-0 in the first title game. And this is from the March 20th issue. And here's the story by Leo Lassen. Skating rings around the Flying Frenchman, Eastern champions the Seattle Metropolitans put the skids under the Montreal squad in the first game of the World's Hockey Title Series at the local arena last night. The final score was 7 goals to 0, with the Seattle men on the long end of the count. For two periods, the Seattle men outplayed the visitor at every angle of the game. Yeah, it was that much of a slaughter. The arena was packed to the roof last night, With hockey enthusiasts, and when Muzz Murray chased the puck into the visitor's goal five minutes after the first faceoff, the huge crowd went wild. Yeah, really wild. It was estimated that 8,500 fans witnessed the struggle. That's a lot. That's a big crowd. You know, the visitors, they were completely puzzled. They were used to the six-man hockey, and without the regulations governing center ice, they were puzzled by the Mets passing game. Not until the final period did the visitors loosen up at all. The famed defense of the Montreal team was strangely like a sieve last night. Vesna, the proclaimed star goalie of hockey, watched seven shots breeze past him into the goal. A sieve or a sev? Yeah, that's right! Seven goals. That is a lot. Uh, the Seattle defense was impassable for the first two periods. Yeah, no kidding. It was a complete shutout. Lalonde, they tried to do well for the Canadians, but they just could not do anything. The Canadians were the aggressors in the first minutes of the play, but the tides turned very quickly after that as Seattle put up goal after goal after goal. In the first period, it was Murray from Ricky, then Foyston unassisted. Then in the second period, Murray from Wilson, then Foyston from McDonald, then Walker went in unassisted, and then it went on. Foyston unassisted. McDonald unassisted. Foyston had a hat trick on that game. Frank Foyston had himself a terrific first game en route to a 7-0 victory over Les Habs. So that's how the first game went. And then it said, Murray was cracked on the hands by Cleghorn of the Canadians just as he shot and was forced to leave the melee with an injured mitt. He was replaced by McDonald. So already, there's an injury on Seattle's side. But how would that turn out for Game 2? Well, the next game was played under the NHL rules, 6-on-6 hockey. So now we go back to the Seattle Star, and this is Monday, March 24th's issue. And here's the headline, Les Canadiens Annex Second Ice Title Mix. So now it was getting even, displaying a marked reversal at form Over their first appearance, Les Canadiens trounced the Seattle Metropolitans in the second tilt of the World's Title Puck Series at the local arena Saturday night by a count of four goals to two. The games now stand at one all. The visitors were playing their own style of game with six men on the ice and under Eastern rules, but they would have beaten the home squad under any rules because they had something on the Mets. The Easterners outskated and outplayed the West Coast Kings of the Ice, in every frame except for the last. Yeah, it was that bad for Seattle. They just could not solve Montreal. With the Canadiens' four goals to the good in the final period, the the Mets' chances for victory looked as slim as a pink tea sandwich. A pink tea sandwich? I never even heard of that. If anyone out there knows what a pink tea sandwich is, please let me know. I, I, I do love these old paper clippings. They are just terrific. They're fun to read. Love love researching every second of this. Uh, the Canadians played rough. They used their weight to affect and did an unnecessary amount of tripping when the puck wasn't even in the neighborhood of the offense. And the paper goes on to talk about the Eastern rules, how in the old NHL, if you were penalized... It would not be a power play. Yes, the offending player would go into the box, but he was able to be replaced right after. So there's really not much of a penalty, I guess. You know, if you get penalized, then someone else comes in. In fact, in the third period, uh, Les Canadiens Clegghorn served a three-minute penalty and replaced by Couture. So, yeah, is there really a reason to penalize if you're not going to have them leave the game at all? Yeah, that's what I thought, too. So going into Game 3, yeah, the betting was pretty even, to be honest. The betting on the series among those who back up their predictions is at even strength. So even after Game 2, no one really knew which side was going to go on. But there was an interesting addendum to that. There isn't a chance in the world that Bernie Morris, star goal-getter of the Mets, who was held at Camp Lewis on a draft evasion charge, will get a chance to play in the series. Morris's writ of habeas corpus petition was denied by U.S. Judge Cushman in Tacoma Saturday, and Morris will face a draft evasion charge at a court-martial on Tuesday at Camp Lewis. Oh, boy. So that's the last we heard of Bernie Morris being arrested on draft dodging. They took that very seriously back then. So that would go into Game 3. Game 3, yeah, this was another slaughter. Uh, they trounced the Canadians in the third mix, and this is from the March 25th issue, and it was not close. Hanging up four goals in the first period, the Seattle Mets enter the third ice mix in the World's Puck Classic with less Canadians. They pretty much trounced them. The final score was seven goals to two, with the Seattle men on the long end of the count once again. So they led the series two games to one. They needed one more game to get the Stanley Cup the emblem of the hockey title of the world. I still think it's that. If the Canadians can win on Wednesday night, the series will again be tied up in a knot, and another game Friday will be necessary. Uh, The Montreal defense was very weak last night. It was weakened by the loss of Corbeau, the big guard, who was hurt in the early minutes of the fracas. He left the game with a badly sprained shoulder and may not be able to play the rest of the series. So... Already Montreal is in a bit of a disadvantage. And it was the Foyston show all the way. Frank Foyston once again put on a clinic of scoring. And here's how the scoring went according to the old-timey box score here. It was in the first period. Foyston unassisted. Foyston unassisted. Then Wilson from Foyston. Then Foyston from Wilson. He had a hat trick in the first period. Second period no scoring. Third period. Cleghorn got a goal for Les Habs. Then Barry Kett. Then it was Foyston unassisted. Murray from Wilson. Ricky unassisted. So Foyston was really showing up in this series, scoring goal after goal. And that was, once again, a 7-2 victory going into Game 4. But there was another story after this. After Game 3, some players were starting to feel a little bit weak. Hmm. I wonder what that means? Well, I'll tell you right now. It meant that this might be the beginning of the end, but the players don't know it yet. And that's as good a place to end it as there ever will be. I originally wanted this to be a two-part episode, but as it turns out, this will end up being a three-part episode. The rest of that part of the tragic story will play out on the next episode. So if you haven't already, it's highly important that you subscribe, because the final part will be one you won't want to miss. Also, as a post script for today's episode, the arena that I had mentioned before, the Jubilee Arena, in an ironic twist of fate, that building would also burn down during the off season. So the Habs would have to find a new home once again. After finding a temporary home for a few seasons, they finally got the financial backing to build the Montreal Forum, a place they would call home until March 11th, 1996. Folks, thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Quickly, you can hear this or any of the previous episodes of Locked On Anaheim Ducks via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are available. Also, please rate, comment, and subscribe. I appreciate all of you listening out there. If you want to talk hockey, email me at LockedOnAnaheimDucks at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at LO underscore Ducks or at StimpyJD. For Locked On Anaheim Ducks, I'm Jason J.D. Hernandez saying have a great rest of the day. Wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe, Anaheim.